With great joy, I invite you to open your copy of God's perfect and precious Word to 1 John chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 5 this morning in 1 John chapter 5. I invite you to stand in reverence for the reading of the perfect words of our sovereign God. Hear these words with the understanding that the very act of God revealing himself to us is an amazing act of love. God was under no obligation to reveal himself to us. God was under no obligation to give us his word. But here we have it. All Scripture is God-breathed. May we hear his word this morning. 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Join me in prayer. Oh, Lord, by faith in Jesus Christ, no one should be here today overcome by the world. Because through Jesus Christ, we overcome the world. Help us to celebrate that victory. Help us to apply the good news of Jesus Christ to our lives today, some for the first time, some who will know him as Savior for the very first time. And for many, embracing the truth of the gospel afresh and anew, applying it to every crack and crevice and cranny of our lives, every thought, Lord, may it be so today. We pray because Jesus is the Christ the resurrected Son of God. In His name we pray. Amen. May be seated. Let me give you a word of encouragement. Everyone in this room is a failure. Now, as a 17-year-old high school baseball player, that didn't sound like a word of encouragement from my coach. But that's what he sat us down, and that's what he told us. And he went on to say, you have to believe that you are a part of something bigger than you. And you need to define yourself by the team, not by you as an individual. 
even when you fail, he said. Because if in this game you define yourself just purely as an individual, you will be frustrated and you will be selfish. He also said, when you fail, and you will often, just keep playing. Just keep going to the plate. Just keep jogging out to the field. And believe, as a team, we can be victorious. 26 years later, I know exactly what he meant. One of the things I enjoy most about the game of baseball is that it is perhaps like no other game an exercise in managing failure. In fact, one of the things that has always drawn me to the game is that is true for everybody who's ever played the game. The greatest players who have ever played the game have been marked not by success, but by failure. In 1941, a man named Ted Williams finished the season batting 406. Nobody has had a batting average that high in the subsequent seven decades. 406, the high water mark. That means he failed six out of ten times. The best of the best. A feat that nobody has duplicated in 70 years. Babe Ruth is known for towering home runs. In fact, he hit 714 of them, and he struck out 1,330 times. Cy Young Award is the award for the best pitcher in baseball. It was named after a man named Cy Young who holds the record for the most losses of any pitcher in the history of baseball. He lost 316 games, but he won a whole bunch too. Managed failure. Church, this morning I want to give you a word of encouragement. Everybody in this room is a failure. See, that wasn't just true for a baseball player. That's true for us. That's the reality for all. The Bible goes to great pains to make the case. And we often go through great pains to avoid the reality. For those who refuse to acknowledge it, for those who refuse to acknowledge that they are a failure, their lives are marked by frustration and self-centeredness. Because if you do not realize that you're a failure, then you try to gain victory for yourself. You try to gain a sense of identity by what you can do. And you only end up frustrated, committed to building your name, building your reputation, which means taking others down. But for those who know, 
that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God is not just talking about people out there, but each one of us individually. Those who know that we are failures and look to Christ by faith are suddenly freed. Because when identity is found in Christ, you don't grope for it anywhere else. And when you know that though you are a failure, you are loved now and forever. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And Jesus is the wrath bearer for our sins. When you know that, you're freed. Not to live trying to cultivate an identity, you've got it. And therefore you are free to look at others and love. Look at 1 John chapter 5 with me this morning. First of all, verse 1. I want us to think about the question, do you have brothers to love? Look with me at verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ. Now pause with me for a moment and look down to the end of verse 5. Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. The first verse, the first clause, the last verse of this section, the last clause, are both about believing in Jesus Christ. Believing that he is the Messiah. He is the the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. And believing that he is the Son of God. That's called an inclusio. It, It means it starts and ends because what the section is about is that. Belief in Jesus Christ. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father, everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. Believing Jesus is the Christ, the the, the Messiah, the anointed one. The uh, anointed ones uh, in the Bible, the, the prophet, the priest, and king. Now it comes here and it says, listen, Jesus is the Christ. He is the prophet, the priest, the king. He is the one in whom we have hope. He is the one in, in whom if you have believed in Jesus, it is because you have been born of God. You have been born anew. The radical grace of God, the reality of the new birth. You have been literally begotten of God. Now, John uses that language. We remember it elsewhere in John's gospel. Jesus is described as the only begotten son. And 1 John makes it clear that there is a way in which we who are not the only begotten Son, not the Son in the unique way that Jesus is the Son, the second person of the Trinity, but we can be sons in the Son. When we're united by faith to Jesus Christ, we are sons. We have been adopted by Him. We have the new birth. We have been born again. 
And notice what he says, that if you have believed in Jesus as the Christ, you have been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. One thing you see in these verses, this section is about faith, or is it about love? It's mentioning love through and through. Yes, it's about both. Faith and love are distinguished, but they are inseparable. John has been making this case throughout. The one who believes loves God. The one who loves God loves his brothers. Faith and love are inseparable. And here he says that believing Jesus is the Messiah is the sign of being born of God or begotten of God, born again, and then loving those born again or loving those begotten of God, the children of God, the brothers, is the sign of loving the Father. Let me put it to you simply. A child who loves his parents will love his brothers. If we don't love those stamped with the image of the Father, we don't love the Father. And if we don't love the Father, then we won't love those stamped with the image of the Father. He says it's not possible to love the Father and hate those stamped with the image of the Father. It doesn't work like that. And it's not possible to to hate the Father and love those stamped with the image of the Father. It is not possible. That is not the way it works. If we were to translate the end of verse 1 most literally, it would sound like this. Whoever loves the one who begats loves the one begotten. Throughout the letter, uh, 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 throughout the, the letter, he has said, those born of God love the brothers and therefore love God. Now he flips it. Those who love God are born of God, therefore they love the brothers. He's going in all directions. It is a circular relationship. If you love God, you are You are uh, uh, filled with the love of God, and you look out and want to express that love and love of brothers. The more you self-sacrificially love the brothers, the more you go back to the source and look to God, and the more you go back to the source and look to God, the more you go back to your brothers and express the love of God, and it goes on and on and on. Now, why does he bring this up here? Well, there are people in the churches He's writing to the churches in Asia Minor. And they are walking away from the churches. They claim that they have some superior knowledge. They're not walking away because they are rejecting in their mind. They are very scrupulously committed to theology and doctrine. They are very religious. And they look at the people in the churches and they think they do not have the knowledge that we have. And they don't want to focus on this idea of of Jesus coming in the flesh. No, they're above that. They want to focus on the spiritual, not the physical. 
And, and they, they do not want to focus on Jesus as the promised Messiah. No, we are looking for that. And since they rejected the core of the Christian faith, even though they would have said that what they're doing is living out the fullest expression, but they rejected the core. And it was shown that they rejected the core because they did not love the brothers. Therefore, they did not love God the Father. Therefore, they were not born of God. If you are begotten of God, you love those who are begotten of God because you love him who begat. He says, listen, folks in the church, don't get sucked in. Look around. Love your brothers. Oh, they're claiming special knowledge. They're, they're claiming a list of rituals. They're claiming a, a, a pathway that they have developed. The very fact that they are doing that reveals they are not children of God. Therefore, they have no brothers to love. Do you see that? If you're not born again, if you're not born of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, then you have no brothers to love. People are not naturally children of God. There have been people running around for years saying that humanity shares the fact that we are all children of God, no matter what path we are on, and therefore we can draw common ground in that way. No, no, no. You're only a child of God if you put your faith in Jesus as the promised Messiah, the one who has kept every promise God has ever made. Only those who come by faith in Jesus are born of God. And if you're not born of God, and you walk away from the brothers, it's because you don't love God. Do you see that John keeps saying in every possible way that love of God and love of brother are inseparable? I mean, he said it in so many different ways, so many different directions. We have to embrace it, and it must be difficult for us to. Love of God and love of brothers is inseparable. And in fact, loving one's brothers is a means of maturing in the love of God. You cannot mature in the love of God by yourself. You could get off, isolated in a room, not come out, have somebody slide you food under the door and meditate on the love of God and read theology books on the love of God for a decade and you would not mature in the love of God. God came out of heaven and took on human flesh and walked this earth to show us his love. 
The only way to mature in the love of God is to meditate on it, then lift your head and look at brothers and sisters and apply it. It's the only way. You see, love is self-sacrificial. Think about what that means. That means that your brother's faults are not a reason to reject him and walk away from him, but rather they're an opportunity to love him. It's an important word. Because we live in a day and age where people try to pass off factiousness as spirituality. I am so committed to the truth. I am so committed to God. I can't get along with anybody else. That's a lie. See, this is a warning to those who are walking away. Those who are always pulling away, always finding fault, always find a reason to bring accusation, always defining themselves as the the tiny cloister clinging to the truth and looking out at everybody else and saying, oh, that's what's wrong with you, and that's what's wrong with you, and that's what's wrong with you. That's why I can't have anything to do with you. I've got a special knowledge. And he says, if you treat your brothers like that, You do not love me because you are not born of me. But you see, the flip side is amazing assurance to those who love their brothers. You do know that loving brothers is messy, right? We irritate each other. We frustrate each other. You say, why don't they just get it? And they say about you, why don't they just get it? And we just have to make it work out in light of the gospel and keep serving one another. But if you look out and you think, I love that person, and I even gravitate toward people I wouldn't ordinarily gravitate to because the gospel is true, that is a demonstration of love of God. It is a manifestation of being born of God. Now the next thing he deals with is the question of how do we know that we're capable of love? Are you capable of love? Look with me at verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. Uh, now, now notice the connection here. This is how we know we love the brothers. We love God, and we obey his commandments. Now, his commandments, for those who are not trying to use them as a ladder to prove their own righteousness and offer it to him, are not a curse. They are a gift. They are a blessing. For those who have been born of God, the commandments of God are the way we demonstrate love of God. And if we demonstrate love of God by embracing the commandments of God, then we love our brothers. You understand this. This is not complicated. If you say, I love my wife, how do you demonstrate that? By cheating on her? By lying to her? No. 
You love your wife? The demonstration of love is faithfulness. The demonstration of love is truthfulness. I had a man in my office one time. There was a couple, they were counseling and they were having marital difficulties and in the course of the counseling, I find out that he's pushed her and knocked her down. He's had multitudes of adulterous affairs. He's on the computer watching pornography in front of her. And then he looks at me and says, but I love her so much. And I said, you are a liar. You are a liar. You love yourself so much. And you want to use her for your own self-pleasure. How do we know we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments? But notice what it says in verse 3. For this is the love of God that, here's a purpose clause, that we keep his commandments. The way we demonstrate love of God is by keeping his commandments, by obeying his commandments. Not out of earning anything, not out of offering righteousness, but in response to his love. But I want you to notice the key to this section. It's the last phrase. And his commandments are not burdensome. They are not heavy. Not for the one who has come by faith in Jesus Christ and is born again who is washed in the love of God, the God who, the Bible says, God is love. God manifests his love by his son dying for sinners. Through faith in him, we're united by him by faith and indwelt with the spirit of God. His commandments are not burdensome. No, they are freeing. They are liberating. But the reason he says this is that those walking away from the churches were replacing the commands of God with their own rules and their own traditions. Now, they were doing it in the name of being hyper-committed to the truth, but in their supposed commitment to the truth, they went beyond and created a new pathway, created a new standard of righteousness. There are these rules. There are these regulations. There is this secret knowledge that has to be attained. Their own rules and traditions— let me, let me say something right here. Whenever you talk about somebody committed to tr- tradition over uh, commandments, over the truth, there's a tendency for th- people to think about older people set in their ways that won't change. Rarely have I ever met an older person as committed to tradition as a lot of the younger people I've met. It's just different tradition. We think about the old person that we've never done it that way, and that's all they ever say. We've never done it that way. But he's talking about people who were active influencers in the church. This was affecting the churches. 
These are people who were, who were speaking often, who were, who, who were um, uh, those who were probably teaching, but they had become a standard of righteousness, their desires, and it was burdensome. It was always getting heavier. This is the, yeah, but you don't fill in the blank crowd. They look around at others. Nobody's ever quite pure enough. Nobody's ever quite orthodox enough. Nobody's ever quite this enough. And so no matter what you say, no matter what's going on, they always look at you and say, yeah, but fill in the blank. There's a lot of people today who will, who will identify with some sort of ministry outside their local church or some sort of group, and they'll start holding that as the standard, the way they do things. Why don't we do things like that? It's not a thus saith the Lord, it's, it's preferential matters, but they'll start, start holding those as the standard. Our secondary matters, and they'll look at brothers and think, oh, I've got it, and other people don't. Some of the most tradition-bound people I have ever met who create their own sense of rules of righteousness are young adults. You see, there are those that profess faith, but at the end of the day, they're really just trying to use faith as an opportunity to serve themselves. Therefore, their identity comes from Separating, dividing, claiming superiority over brothers. Not identity by loving them. Not identity in the love of God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, identity found is in serving and loving brothers, but identity found in separating from them. The identity of some people is being a professional critic. There are some people who wake up in the morning in the name of Jesus wondering how they can shake the assurance of others. Let me just come up with this super clever Facebook status that'll make everybody feel bad about themselves. Wouldn't that be great? Folks, there's something wrong with that. There's something wrong with that. There are those who want their identity to be, that they're able to stand above it all and critique. They're sort of the naysayers. And they really function Pharaoh-like in the name of Christianity. Pharaoh just wanted to increase the burden, increase the burden. And there are those out there who profess faith in Christ, but really are trying to just simply increase the burden in others because they stand over here and self-profess that, that they have this, they've done this, and you need to do this, and they know this, and you need to know this. And, and so everything is about gaining identity, about a superiority of self over brothers. That is not the way a Christian looks at his brothers. If you are not willing to let other professing Christians to be in process and to stand alongside them and love them, then you've got a problem. You see, obeying and keeping the commandments, 
That starts with faith. That's not something that you and I do and offer to God. That's something that he has done as the only one who perfectly obeyed the commandments and offers to us. And that's why the law is a schoolmaster that drives us to Christ. But when we come to Christ by faith, we understand that no obedience is obedience apart from faith. In fact, the scripture calls it the obedience of faith. And we know that it produces a humility. Identity is in Christ. Identity is found in self-sacrificially serving others, following Christ, following in his path, not creating an image, not uh, creating the impression we're some kind of super Christian, not not creating a, a thing in which I feel better by myself by belittling others. It's not that at all. It's marked by stepping into people's messy lives and serving them and loving them. You see, those advocating their own standard of righteousness are not capable of love because they are serving themselves, not serving the God who is love. Therefore, they are not loving the brothers. They're not loving his children. Uh, Life with brothers and sisters is not always easy, is it? But they're your brothers and sisters. Right? You love your mom and dad. You love your brothers and sisters. What about the child who sits around and they're just trying to find fault? You know the child who says, uh, oh, he didn't do that. I did that. I did that. Oh, they didn't do that. I did that. That's not helpful in the home, is it? Well, it's wicked in the church. In verses 4 and 5, he concludes this section. And we've all got to answer the question, are you afraid to die? Look with me at verse 4. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Now, this word overcomes here is a word you're familiar with because the the, the company, Nike, has taken this as their name. That's, That's the word. It means victorious, overcomer, conqueror. So he tells those in the churches at Asia Minor, for everyone who has been born of God, by God's sovereign grace who has been born again, overcomes the world, conquers the world, is victorious over the world. The world here is the the world system of rebellion against God. Just think about it like this. The world is considering everything without God, drawing conclusions without God, mapping out life without God. So there's the world, and there are those who have been born of God. Those who are born of God love the Father, love their brothers. Their life is defined by the gospel. So there is uh, there's the one who, who is in the world, and there's the one who, because he's been born of God, overcomes the world, conquers the world, is victorious in the world. Notice the second part of the verse. And this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith. You 
Notice what defines the life of one who has been born of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Victory. Victory. There are those who are a part of the world, and no matter how hard they try, they are being overcome by the world. And there are those in Jesus Christ who are born of God, who are those who overcome the world, those who have victory over the world, those who are conquerors over the world. Now, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, for everyone who has been born of God endures the world, slogs through the world, survives another day in this miserable country that's going down the wrong path and this miserable world. Well, we'll make it through the streets of gold one day because we love Jesus, but boy, it's awful now. That's not what he says. It's not defined by a teeth-gritting endurance. There is an exuberant sense of victory. Victory because of the gospel, but in Jesus Christ, the gospel has come to you. That's an experience of personal victory in the world. There is no room for be miserable, critical, complaining, but love and serve Jesus anyway, Christianity. Now, the reason we get into that is we stop defining the world in light of God and the gospel. And we just look around and we start defining the world by what we see. And let's be honest. If all you do is trust your sight, it looks like the world is winning. As we speak, babies are being slaughtered. As we speak, young girls are being sold into sex slavery. As we speak, tyrannical dictators are oppressing their people. And we look around and we say, but you said all things would be under our feet. I do not see all things under our feet. And then the writer of Hebrews says, but we see Jesus. Our faith. We live based on our faith, not by our sight. The world is defined by our faith. It's defined by the truth of who Jesus Christ is, what he's done. It's not defined by our sight. We live with a sense of triumph. We do not live by what we see. We do not live by the circumstances. We live by Jesus. We live according to his promises. Faith overcomes the world. No matter what, the one who's born of God, the one who believes in Jesus, the one who loves God, the one who loves his brothers, is in the world overcoming the world in him. Now look at verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. You see, the one who does not believe lives not by faith, but by sight, even if they're super religious. And when you live according to the world's standards, what you try to do is build a name for yourself. Make yourself look better, make others look worse. There's people all over who do that, even in the name of Christianity. 
But John says it's a lie. That's living according to the world. That's living according to the standards of the world. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? You know who's called Son of God in the Bible? Adam, Israel, the Davidic king, and Jesus. Adam, why? He's the representative head of a people. Israel is the representative nation. The Davidic king is the representative king. And Jesus comes and he's the new Adam. He's the true Israel. He's the king of kings. Jesus comes as the representative head of his people. Jesus is king. He's Lord. He's the royal son in whom we become sons. Therefore, our lives are defined by him. Notice here, let me be really clear. This is not generic faith overcomes the world. There's an idea today that if you just sort of generically believe in God, it doesn't matter what you call it, doesn't matter the, the terminology, but you just believe in a higher power. You believe in a supreme being. Faith in a generic God does not overcome the world. Satan is not worried about generic gods. And it's also not faith in faith. Oh, there's that whole stream out there today. That overcoming the world is really self-referential. It's faith in my faith. So what I got to do is I got to increase my faith, and I have enough faith in my faith, then I can overcome the world. And Jesus said... Faith as small as a mustard seed can move mountains. What's the point? It's not the amount of your faith. It's the object of your faith. The object is Jesus. The faith that overcomes the world is not faith in a generic God. It is not faith in faith. It is faith in Jesus the King. The one who demonstrated that he is the overcomer by fulfilling all the promises of the Messiah, by coming as the Son of God, and by being the resurrected Savior. Jesus overcomes the world, and the chief demonstration of his overcoming the world is that he is begotten from death. He comes in the world, takes on humanity, fully God, fully man, marches to a cross, tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. He dies. He died. He was dead. But he rose again. He's the one begotten from the dead. He's the one who has overcome the world. All of the forces of the world in rebellion against God focused on Jesus. Kill him, kill him, kill him. And it happened, and yet he overcame the world. You see, when you and I have faith in him, we are united to him. He triumphed in death, bringing the death of death. And we overcome the world in him. The book of Revelation puts it this way in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. And they have conquered, same word, overcome. They have conquered him, 
That is Satan, who the previous verse calls the accuser of the brothers. Oh, what does Satan do? He accuses. What does he do? He adds burdens. You haven't done enough. You're not, you, you can't have that because you're this, that, and the other. You don't deserve that. He's the accuser of the brothers. He's the burden bringer. They have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. You see, we realize as believers in Jesus that he is begotten from death, and in him we are as well. You see, that's the ultimate attempt of the world to overcome us. Sin that leads to death but not in Jesus Christ. That means this, that nothing can overcome the one who believes in Jesus and is born of God, is a child of God. The world can assault, attack, vilify, persecute, oppress, and even kill. But what looks like defeat, failure, and death isn't in Jesus Christ. Have you ever watched one of those movies where there's a hero in the movie and you know he's not going to die, right? That's the whole point. If they kill him off, there's no sequel. You know he's going to live. But the entire plot is to cause you to say, I don't see how he can make it through this. I don't see how he can get out of this. I don't see any way he can make it. I can't see how. The enemies seem to have the upper hand, and then somehow, all of a sudden, there's a turn. And guess what? The enemies are defeated, and he lives. He's the victor. If you're in Jesus Christ, that's what you are living. The world tried to overcome him on a bloody cross. It didn't look like there was any hope. It looked like he was done for. And then he rose from the dead. And he raises up a new humanity of people who are born of him. And he says, your life's going to look the same way a lot of times. Take up your cross and follow me. Yeah, it's going to look, nothing good can come of this. There's no way I can make it out of this. There, there's, there's no hope. And yet you are waiting with anticipation because you know the story ends in victory. That's what it's like for Christians. That's why it's a word of encouragement. Every person in this room is a failure. Believe that in Christ you are a part of something bigger than you. Something that the gates of hell cannot prevail against. And though you're a failure, Christ is the victor. And in him, people like you and me know victory. We're swept into this thing that's so much bigger than us, this kingdom. And you get your identity from Christ and his church. Not from yourself, not from your abilities, not from your personality, not from your gifts, not from your obedience. And when you fail, and you will, you confess it and you keep following him. And you live based on the victory of Christ, knowing that in him you have the victory. You see, there's this 
There's this under-bubbling confidence in the one who has faith. Oh, it may look like the world is overcoming me. That's not the way the story ends. Because of Jesus, I overcome the world. By the way, one of the ways you love your brothers is by living that. If there's a culture in this congregation where we come in crossroads and we get some coffee and sit down, oh, yeah, it's miserable, the stinking government, and, you know, I mean, just this, and I don't have any money, and gas prices, and I mean, just this, and this guy at work said this to me, and the person over there in that Sunday school room said this to me, and, and then we come in here and somebody, hey, how you doing? Oh, terrible, I had to work, and, uh, you know, uh, 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 and then we come in here and we sing about Jesus, the victor. No, the way we give a gift to one another and love one another is it's to be obvious that we believe the story. And we walk in this place and we say, oh, the grace of a, of a sovereign God who would grant me the new birth. I've got brothers to love. Isn't it glorious? I've got brothers to love. What a gift. And I'm capable of love, not because of me, but because of him. He kept the commandments for me. And now, by faith in him, I want to declare my love for him. And you know what? I'm not too big on dying, but I'm not afraid to die. Because when they stand over that gravesite, it is not a testimony that the world has overcome me. They stand over that gravesite in faith. And it's a reminder to them that in Jesus we have overcome the world. Let's pray.